This morning, would you please open up to the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther, chapter 2. If you're new with us, don't be afraid to use your table of contents to find it. If you just open your Bible to the middle, you might land in Psalms. And then Esther is just to the left uh, of Psalms. You've got Psalms, then Job, and then Esther. And uh, chapter 2, verse 19 is where we'll start in a moment. I just want to give you a quick commercial also. If you're new with us, you may not be aware of these things. These are what we call our sermon study guides. And they are available, they're just sort of scattered around at different places in the church, but mainly uh, there is a display at one of the main entrances uh, where you can pick it up on your way out. And here's what we do. Uh, these sermon study guides deal with the preaching passage a week in advance. So today's sermon study guide deals with what we're going to study next Sunday. And so uh, you have a brief introduction to that passage. You've got some questions to use in your own personal study or in a study with your family or with your growth group. And uh, I want to encourage you to make use of those. If you interact with that text a bit before coming in next Sunday, uh, it gives you a head start in making sense of what's going on and what the passage is dealing with. So we're in Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19, and we're going to go to the end of chapter 3 today. What am I going to do? That's the question so many of us ask all the time. That's a question we take to God in prayer. It's the question that drives us in crisis. It's the question put before us in Esther chapter 3 today. What am I going to do? We want to know the answer to that question. We're pretty adamant that God has to answer that question for us when we bring it to him because it's very important to you and I to know what our next steps should be. And then when God does not give us the answer we want in the time that we want it, we often meet with great frustration and perhaps a sense of more intense crisis or conflict in the moment. Well, in our passage today, or excuse me, in our passage last week, we, we met Mordecai. We met his niece slash adopted daughter, Esther, and we saw Esther get coronated as the, or crowned as the queen of Persia. And if that was the end of this story, we would just chalk it up to fairy tale material and that would be the end of it. But we step into chapter 3 today and things begin to get intense. The crisis arises and Mordecai and you and I and God's people, we are left with this question, what am I going to do? And it's good to have a little bit of an anchor point whenever the conflict increases or the crisis arises and in Esther chapter 3, we get some anchor points. Our passage is unrelenting crisis. When I read it, it sort of stokes my anxiety a bit, just to be quite honest with you. And this is a place that all too many of us are familiar with. What do we do with the small frustrations of life? What do we do when we're in the midst of major crisis? Well, my purpose in preaching this passage is to give you guidance that applies for every day, but especially for the day of crisis. Esther chapter 2 verses 19 through chapter 3 verse 15 teaches us two lessons that we can apply in every situation we face. These are two characteristics common and powerful for God's people. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Esther chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 19 and we're going to go to the end of chapter 3. So when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. 
During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamidatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in, the, in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. When Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there, or excuse me, then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamidatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left spurred on by royal command and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. It's an intense chapter. The crisis escalates and escalates and escalates. And even in the midst of this really intense moment, God's people have clear direction. What are we going to do in every situation, especially in crisis? Our passage gives us two instructions. The first instruction is this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on God's revealed will. What are you and I going to do as God's people 
when life is thrown into chaos, when crisis lands, or tomorrow we wake up to rainbows and puppy dogs, we are going to focus on God's revealed will. So our passage opens with this interesting account of the time that Mordecai saved the king's life. Verse 21 tells us that Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate when he learned that two guards were planning to assassinate King Ahasuerus. What does it mean that he's sitting at the king's gate? Is that just a place where locals would hang out and tell stories and, and catch up? Well, it's not a place to linger. The king's gate was a place to work. I want to show you an artist's rendition of what this palace might have looked like. We have great... Uh, archaeological records of this very specific place and so this drawing is based on those archaeological findings. It's a massive complex, a huge elevated palace in the midst of a very dry brown place and you see the arrow at the bottom pointing to that little building out front. That is the King's Gate. The King's Gate was not a soda bar, a place just to hang out and tell stories. It was a place for work. And so when we're told that Mordecai was at the King's Gate, we're told what his job is. Now, we don't know who gives him that job. We don't know how he becomes a part of the royal staff. We don't know when. We don't know any of that. We just know that's the man's job. And while he is on the job one day, he overhears these two guards angry at the king and plot his assassination. So Mordecai springs into action. He reports what he has heard. The plot is put down. Uh, there, uh, these two thugs meet with the king's judgment, and that's the end of the story. Now, here's what you and I might expect. After Mordecai has done what is right and saved the king's life, we would expect chapter 3 to open with words of praise and gifts and promotion for Mordecai. That's what we would expect. Persian kings were well known for rewarding people who did them well. But that's not how the story goes. When we get to chapter 3, verse 1, we would expect it to say Mordecai was honored and promoted in rank and given a higher position than all the other officials, but he's not recognized for it. The story is recorded in the king's history, his book of records of things that happen, but there's no recognition, no reward, nothing that comes to Mordecai, instead, chapter 3 opens telling us of a man named Haman who gets a reward that we might expect Mordecai himself to get. Who is Haman? Well, we don't know a ton about the man, but we know his ancestry. He's called Haman the Agagite. Now, when I read that a moment ago and when I just said it, I'm not sure I heard any gasps. They may have been muffled a little bit because of your masks, but it could be that you don't understand what it means that Haman is an Agagite. Number one, in, just in the history of bad guy names, is there a better bad guy name than Haman the Agagite? I mean, you are born to be a bad guy with a name like that. But anyways, here's what we know for sure. We know that Haman's ancestry in some way conflicts with Mordecai's ancestry. To be called an Agagite means you are a descendant of a man named King Agag, and King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. In Exodus chapter 17, God's people have left Egypt. They are, they've been set free from their slavery. And while they are on their way to Sinai, they are attacked by the Amalekites. They're in a weakened condition. They don't have strength to fight. God protects them and preserves them. And then God issues a decree of judgment on the Amalekites. 
So Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites attack. God then curses the Amalekites and orders their memory to be blotted out from the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 25 and Numbers 24 talk about this. Several generations later, when Saul becomes Israel's first king, he then is ordered by God to carry out the sentence of God on the Amalekites and on King Agag in particular. However, Saul disobeyed God. He allowed King Agag to live, and he took all of Agag's wealth and pocketed it for himself. And ever since then, there was bitter rivalry and antagonism between the Amalekites and the Israelites. So that gives you a bit of the historical flavor, why there's this animosity between an Agagite and a Jewish man. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the first sentence of chapter 3 again. And when I say the word Agagite, with the information you have, I want you as God's people to respond verbally in an appropriate way. You might boo, you might say no, you might say ah, whatever it is you say, I want you to verbally respond to this line. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, the son of Hamidatha the Agagite. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Good job. Now we giggle, and we should. That's a little silly exercise. But the original audience would have had a sincere gasp. They would have understood immediately why this is bad news. There's a sense of foreboding. It's ominous that Haman the Agagite is promoted to the second most powerful seat in the land. Well, we get to verse 2 then, and Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. The king has given the command, everyone should bow in homage to Haman. Mordecai refuses. And the big question is, why didn't Mordecai bow? There's a couple of different options you get to choose from. One option is that Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman because he's only going to bow to God. He'll bow to no man, he only bows to his God. After all, that's kind of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when King Nebuchadnezzar told everyone to bow before his golden statue. But there's nothing to support that in the text. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't not bow because they're only going to bow to God. They, they didn't bow before the statue because it was an issue of worship, not an issue of homage or honor or respect. Haman's not being asked to be worshipped as a god. Uh, the king Ahasuerus is not telling people to worship Haman as a god. He's just telling them to bow out of respect and honor to Haman. So uh, there's nothing in the passage that would lead us to the conclusion that Mordecai refuses to bow because he only bows to God and not to man. In fact, in many cultures outside of the West, it is common to greet one another by bowing. That's not an act of worship. It's an act of honor and respect to the person across from you. So I don't think that's the reason he doesn't bow. Another option is perhaps Mordecai is just stubborn and selfish. He did the good thing. He didn't get rewarded. His feelings are hurt that he didn't get promoted. And so he, he selfishly refuses to bow to Haman and thereby puts all of his people in jeopardy. But again, we don't see any support for that in the text. It's just a guess on our part. So what does the text give us? Why then does Mordecai not bow? Well, again, the text points us to the ancestral animosity between Jews and Amalekites. Remember when we were introduced to Mordecai last week in chapter 2, the first thing we're told about him is that he is a Jew. 
And when we're introduced to Haman here in chapter 3, the first thing we're told is he's a descendant of Agag. And you know, you remember that Mordecai's ancestor Saul had animosity with Haman's ancestor Agag. So in Esther chapter 3, this descendant of Saul runs headlong into a descendant of Agag, and that's why the sparks fly. In fact, uh, when Mordecai is asked by his fellow royal staff, why do you not bow? He said, it's because I'm a Jew in verse 4. So that's my conclusion, is that Mordecai is choosing to respond to Haman in a way that is consistent with God's instructions to his people generations before. Mordecai remembers what God said. He remembers God's judgment against the Amalekites. He remembers what God commanded King Saul. He knows that King Saul failed to do what God told him to do because of his own sin and pride. And Mordecai knows that God's judgment against the Amalekites still stands. Therefore, he will not bow. And think of sort of the absurdity of all of this. Mordecai is just one man in the middle of Persia, far from Jerusalem. No one around him is remembering these things. No one around him cares about these things. He is one man who remembers what God said and he acts accordingly. He will not call honorable that which God has called dishonorable. He's just one man with a word from God. And that dictates his behavior in this moment. He doesn't stop and pray, God, what do I need to do? He knows what he needs to do because God spoke long ago about this very moment. Now, it's not for Mordecai to take up a sword and go start hacking at descendants of Agag. In his own way, in his own appropriateness, he simply refuses to bow to the one who bears the judgment of God. So what we see in Mordecai is the difference between coming to God for knowledge we don't have versus living in the direction that God has already revealed. Seldom will you and I know God's circumstantial will. However, we are never without God's revealed will. Mordecai operates according to the revealed will of God, and he's not concerned with God's circumstantial will in this moment. He doesn't come to God and say, why don't I have the job? Why don't I have the position? Why aren't people bowing to me? He knows what God has said, and he acts accordingly. On normal days, you and I might pray about certain situations and ask God what we should do. But how interested is God really in just helping us make decisions day to day as if he's some sort of a heavenly magic eight ball? I think what the Bible gives us is that God is much more interested in the kinds of people we are and we are becoming. What good is it if we know the right decision to make in a situation, but we don't pay attention to our own holiness or the way God is shaping or molding us, even in our crisis moments? This is so true, especially in days that are difficult. We may have a long list of questions for God, including what's next? How soon do we get back to normal? What's my next step? Why did this happen? And seldom do we find answers to those questions in Scripture. Instead, God instructs us in His Word about the kinds of people we are to be. That's the work of His revealed will. God, I'm in a situation, I don't know what to do, but I know who you want me to be. So what kind of people are we to be according to God's revealed will? 
We are people who worship no other gods. We are people who love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We are people who forgive as we have been forgiven. We are people who do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are people who tell others about Jesus Christ. The list goes on and on. We may not know what God wants us to do in this specific situation or what God is going to do in a specific situation, but we know the kind of people he wants us to be. Now, it's not a sin to pray and ask God for direction or help with a decision. But here's what I want to challenge you to do in the week ahead. What if in this next week, instead of focusing on the answers you don't have, you focus instead on praying what God has already said? Again, it's not a sin to pray and say, God, help me with this. I, I want to make a right choice. I want to do the right thing. That's not a sinful thing at all. We have many examples of those types of prayers throughout the Bible. But my concern is our pendulum is swung way out of whack. What if instead this week you took serious this challenge and you prayed what you know God has already said and commanded? Here's an example. Marital conflict is complicated, doesn't make for an easy sermon illustration, but here's what it might look like in that sort of setting. I find that in marital conflict, seldom is it just one person's fault. More often than not, both people bear responsibility for the conflict that they're carrying. And when they show up to talk about it, he has his list of grievances, she has her list of grievances, and they're so busy pointing out what the other has done wrong, they never stop to consider what their brokenness contributes to the conflict. So if the wife is going to focus on God's revealed will for her, she might pray something like this. God, help me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength so I can love my husband as myself. Teach me joyful submission to you so that I can respect my husband and joyfully submit to him. Here we have great commandment material. We have Ephesians 5. God has revealed his will for the kind of person this woman should be. Likewise, the husband would pray similarly. God, help me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength so I can love my wife as myself. Teach me to love Christ who gave himself for me so that I would love my wife in this way and lay down my life for the sake of her holiness. We're praying God's revealed will. Now, that's a vast oversimplification. That's not a magic prayer, and if you pray that prayer this week, it's not going to automatically set everything right. Conflict requires lots of talking and listening and apologies and strategizing and tears and more apologies and ice cream and all the things that help conflict get resolved. But what if this week you focused on what God has already said rather than pleading in the mystery and the fog for the answers you would, might want more. See, God is not silent. He's spoken clearly. So let's cease to worry about what we don't know and start living in what we do know. So what are we going to do? On our good days and our hard days, we're going to focus on God's revealed will. Esther 3 gives us a second area of focus. We're going to focus on God's proven character. I want to focus on what God has said I'm also going to focus on who God is. What has he said and what kind of God has said this to me? And especially when crisis escalates, I want to be clear that my focus is on this God who has spoken and who has acted on my behalf. 
So news of Mordecai's refusal to bow reaches Haman, and his anger spins wildly out of control. Rather than simply addressing the situation with Mordecai directly, what does he do? He decides, I'm going to end all of Mordecai's people. He takes one personal affront, and he spins it into genocide. It is complete and total insanity on Haman's part. We're told in verse 7 that he chooses a date for the destruction of the Jews by casting the poor or the lot. Think of it in this way. It is like ancient dice. It looks like dice. It has numbers on it like dice. Haman determines the date of a genocide by rolling dice. One of those is called a poor. Two of them or more is called purim in the plural. And that's where the name of the Jewish holiday Purim comes from, is this act right here where Haman rolls dice and decides the day on which he's going to uh, commit genocide against the Jewish people. Having set the date, he goes to the king, and lucky for Haman, King Ahasuerus is a moron. Haman explains how he's going to destroy a significant portion of the tax base in the kingdom. And then how he's going to replace those losses with 375 tons of silver. It is an absolutely ridiculous and unattainable amount. He might as well have said, King, I'm going to give you 11 bajillion dollars if you'll let me go do this thing. Because it, it is an insane number. It's not realistic in any way whatsoever. But Ahasuerus is um, he's not a wise man. He makes bad choices. He doesn't consider the ramifications of things, so he takes off his signet ring, which holds all the power of the kingdom in it. He hands it to Haman and says, go to work, buddy. And so that's what Haman does. According to verse 12, Haman draws up the edict to destroy the Jews on the first month, and the date to destroy the Jews is in the twelfth month. Edict drawn up on the first month, day of destruction in the twelfth month. You've got nearly a year between the time the edict goes out to the time it is enacted. And why such a long time? Was it because it just took that long to get things out to the different parts of the empire? No, not at all. It's because Haman is a terrorist. And he gets the information out to the, every corner of the empire in order to increase the fear and the panic of the Jewish people. They will not just die on one day. They will suffer every day up to that. Haman's decree does not just apply to those in the capital city even. It applies to everyone across the empire as far away as the city of Jerusalem. The Jews are going to be slaughtered and there seems to be no hope of escape. So chapter 3 is non-stop crisis escalation. There's no resolution for God's people in chapter 3. It ends with what I think is one of the most chilling lines in the entire Old Testament. The last sentence of chapter 3, the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in, conf in confusion. If you read chapter 3 from Mordecai's point of view, it is conflict, it is crisis without resolution. If you read it from Haman's perspective, there is a small crisis, Mordecai won't bow, and then there is terrific resolution. That's why he's feeling great at the end of chapter 3. And so 
this is probably why it's a good idea to read Esther in one sitting so you don't stop at a point like this where there's no resolution and we just feel all panicky about it. But then again, isn't this like so much of our lives? Crisis escalating, resolution seeming beyond us. We don't know for sure what God is going to do. We've asked these questions of God. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous perish? Now, if Esther chapter 3 were the end of this story, we would be in big trouble. But it's not the end of the story, right? There's more to come, and I don't want to spoil anything for you, but look, Haman's throat with which he swallows his drink is soon going to feel the squeeze of the hangman's noose. There is resolution to come. It's just not here yet. But this is the case of God's people over and over. They have often faced crisis without a clear course of resolution, and yet God delivers his people every time. His track record is perfect. He has never failed his people, not once. Let me give you some examples. Listen to these resolution moments in the history of God's people. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 16, God told Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Exodus 14, 26, God told Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, so the troops of Israel shouted and the trumpets sounded. And when they heard the blast of the trumpets, the troops gave a great shout and the wall of Jericho collapsed. In Judges chapter 3, verse 20, then Ehud, Israel's deliverer, approached King Eglon while he was sitting alone in the upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 49. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling. In a stone. If you fast forward a little bit, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Then Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, Jesus cast a demon out of a man. In Mark 1, 34, he healed all the sick people that were brought to him. In Mark 1, 41, Jesus touched a man with leprosy and he healed him. In Mark 2, 5, Jesus told the paralyzed man his sins were forgiven. And then in verse 11, he told him to rise and walk. In Mark 14, 43, Jesus is betrayed by one of his own and arrested. In Mark 14, 65, he's beaten by religious leaders. In Mark 15, 16, he's beaten by Roman soldiers. In Mark 15, 24, they crucified him and divided up his clothes, casting the Purim, or lots, to decide what each soldier would get. In Mark 15, 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Un relenting crisis. Then three days later, John chapter 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. John 20, 16, Mary saw the resurrected Christ. John 20, 19, the disciples meet the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he ascended into heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, God the Holy Spirit comes down and indwells his people. And everything changes for everyone 
forever. So much so that a few years later in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Paul writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. We focus on God's proven character. It is easy to become a practical atheist when crisis spikes. Which is why we have to come back to these pages and hear these stories and remind ourselves who God is, what he has always done, how he has always been victorious on behalf of his people and for the sake of his glory. So when you move your focus from the enormity and the unfairness of your situation to the compassion and the strength of your God, you find your hope renewed. Your days are not determined by the size of your crisis, but by the might of your God and by his record of perfect deliverance. So if Esther 3 or Good Friday were the ends of the story, we'd all be toast. But it's not. We are resurrection people. And we worship a Savior who is alive and who is coming again. That changes everything for us, even when we are living in an Esther 3 moment. So then how do you get a glimpse of God's proven character? How do you, in your trial, remember who God is and what he's done? Very simply, you open this book and you read. And you look again and again at all of the troubles that God's people have faced and see how God has never failed his children, not once. And once you have these stories in mind, you look at your own story with new endurance and new strength. And even while the crisis is unresolved, you know that God will not let you down. The God of the resurrection will carry you all the way through. So Esther 3 gives us these two instructions for living in a land of crisis. The first is to focus on God's revealed will. What has God already said? And second is to focus on God's proven character. Who is he? What is he like? And I told you how to do each of those. So first you focus on God's revealed will by praying and by obeying what he has already said. And then second, you're going to focus on God's proven character by searching the Bible for accounts of his deliverance and there finding renewed faith and endurance for yourself. Now, if you're not a Christian, you have to know that our God is, he's not just a fix-it type of God. He is a relational God, and he has a beautiful deliverance waiting for you. You see, look, you do not want to be like Haman, who at the end of this chapter feels like his conflict is resolved and life is good, and he sips his drink in a sense of smug success. You don't want to be that guy. Because there is a ferocious judgment coming for Haman. And it is likewise a terrible judgment for all those who deny and reject God. You don't understand what your sin is doing to you. It has always been destroying you. You are dead in it. But let me tell you what God's revealed will is for you. His revealed will is that you would not die as a result of your sin and bear the judgment of God against your sin, but that someone else would instead. And so he provided a substitute. 
That's Jesus Christ. He is God the Son. This is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God except through Jesus. No other way. He is the only one who could have died in your place for your sin, and he did. When Jesus died, he died sinless, perfect, holy, but he died accountable for what you have done, your rebellion against God. He's the only one that could do that. And he did it because he loves you. His hand isn't forced. He willingly went and laid down his life. He loves you. Sinner that you are, he loves you. He took away all of God's punishment for your sin on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. So we can trust him. He's alive. His words are true. He alone is the perfect sacrifice for your sin. His revealed will for you is this, is that you would turn from your sin and you would trust entirely in him. That you would say to him, pray to him something like this, Jesus, I, I know you are God. You died for me. And I'm going to put everything on you. I'm going to trust you entirely. I'm not going to try and add anything of my own. Oh, I'm religious. I'm good. I'm not so bad. I'm going to say it's all bad. You alone are good. And I'm going to trust you, Jesus, save me. And he'll do it. Every time he'll do it. He will save you once and forever. You will be his child. And he will be with you forever. Are you ready to do that? Maybe you're a religious person, a spiritual person, a good person, but you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Today's the day. You can do that just through your own prayer, just your own words. There's not a magic formula. You can just sit with Jesus and talk to him, and he knows your heart. And when you say yes to him, he's already said yes to you. And if you want some guidance, you've got some questions, grab me after the service today. Email me this week. Let's find some time to get together and talk because there's nothing more important than your eternity. For those of you who are my brothers and sisters in the faith, it's time for us to focus on God's revealed will as well as his proven character. And that's what a friend of mine named Jewel Hauser did several years ago. I had walked with Jewel and her family uh, through several devastating situations, including the untimely death of her husband. Uh, just two years after her husband's funeral, I learned that Jewel had been given a very serious diagnosis. She described her meeting with her doctor to me like this. Uh, she was sitting in his office uh, with a couple of family members and the doctor came in and he said, okay, Jewel, here's what the tests show. This is your diagnosis. And I'm so sad to tell you, you just have a few weeks left to live. And she said immediately the doctor started to cry really, really hard. And Jewel, in a way um, that only she could, she smiled big and she said to the doctor, Dear, why are you crying? You haven't given me bad news, you've given me good news. I don't want to die, but I want to see Jesus. And so she went over and she hugged the sobbing doctor. <laughs> and then she told him about Christ's love for him. And then a couple weeks later, when we had Jewel's funeral, it was an incredible celebration of the faithfulness of God. Death had lost its sting. And her funeral was an opportunity for all of us who knew her and who knew her God to praise him for her and her life. Jewel wasn't a superhuman type of Christian. She was a common Christian who trusted her incredible Savior. And so today I'm not sending you out the door with any solutions to the crisis you're in. But I'm sending you out the door with a God who has given us a place to fix our eyes. What are we going to do? We're going to focus on our God who has spoken 
and who is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you have not left us alone in our trials, that you are present. You're near to the brokenhearted. You guide us through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, you've never left us alone. And yet you know the weakness of our hearts, in our minds, our emotions, our spirits, so that whenever the hard day comes, it's easy for us to let the crisis seem larger than you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters today, God, that you would set our eyes on your revealed will, that we would focus on what we do know and we would live accordingly, whether in crisis or in peace, that we would be consumed with this question, what has God said? And we would live accordingly. And God, I pray that you would fix our eyes on you so that we would know your character to be true and good and compassionate and trustworthy, even though our situation is unresolved. May we yet trust in you and praise you because you are good and you do not fail. Lord, bring new life today to the one that would trust in you as their Savior. And glorify yourself in our lives as we walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Let's stand and let's sing of the greatest victory ever. Christ is risen. 